Spy Stories depends on the support of listeners like you. You can find us at Patreon as Spy Stories, or you can just click the link in the show notes. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting it. Every little bit helps. Thank you. Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Who are you going to tell me about today, Karen? Today we learn about World War II agent Betty McIntosh. She was a spy, and this is her story. But before we start, we're going to take a second to talk about what it is to be a spy. It is our goal to tell the stories of those that are involved in espionage, all the people who worked in the shadows to accomplish goals that they might not have ever achieved otherwise. But espionage does take on different forms, and we want to highlight that along with the lives that make up the missions. So with that in mind, we're going to talk about Elizabeth. Elizabeth Betty Pete was born March 1st, 1915 in Washington, D.C., She had one sister and one brother. Both of her parents were journalists. Betty's father, William, was a well-known sports editor and her mother was a columnist. William was so well-connected in the area that Betty's godfather was Washington Senator pitcher Walter Johnson. Now, because you know baseball, you probably know who I'm talking about, right? Walter Big Train Johnson. Ah, okay. Possibly the greatest pitcher to ever pick up a baseball. That's a lot coming from you. You you know your pitchers. So and truly there there would be a debate whether it was him or Christy Matthewson, but I think it's big train. Well, there you go. Well the Pete family moved to Hawaii in nineteen twenty five, where her mother began teaching at an all Japanese school. This began Betty's long lasting interest in Asian culture. Betty attended a missionary school in Honolulu, where she gained a classical education, including Latin and French. The well-read student was very popular among her classmates. She was a very pretty girl, and she was an avid tennis player. She was often found with her nose in a book, but that book was never fiction. She had an affinity for nonfiction. She was also known to be quite mischievous. Her high school yearbook described her as the originator of nine-tenths of the deviltry perpetrated in study hall and classrooms. Then she would confront irate teachers with an unabashed grin, stoutly maintaining her innocence. See, I think that sounds like something you would do in high school. I would I would not maintain my innocence. No. I would just say, why are you presuming that I'm guilty? Right. You would somehow turn it back on them that, that they were doing something wrong by catching you. Right. Like, yeah. do you have a hall pass? See <laughs> right. you having a hall pass. Why yeah. are you asking me? Right. Yeah. I, I can completely see that. Well, the funny thing is that despite her popularity, Betty was actually kind of a loner. She preferred spending her time in the zoo near her house, talking to the elephant named Daisy that she deemed her best friend. Betty attended university for a year in Hawaii and then transferred to the University of Washington, where she graduated from the School of Journalism. Betty then went back to Hawaii to work. William helped his daughter get a job as a sports writer, but 
you know, which was very nice and everything. But Betty was kind of like, "Mm, no, thanks. (laughs) It wasn't really her passion. That was more of her dad's passion. And she pretty much hated it. But she did her work for a while. And then she was finally transferred over to feature work where she enjoyed it a whole lot more. Betty flourished in that position. She loved being in the know and the excitement of covering noteworthy people and events. Betty was very social and fun-loving, and she thrived on excitement. And her thirst for excitement had her chatting all the time with her deskmate, Alexander McDonald, who was a reporter covering Honolulu's police beat. The two writers began a flirtation that eventually led to a wedding. The couple shared an aspiration to work for Associated Press overseas, and both had an affinity for Japanese culture. While their new home was under construction, the couple moved in with a traditional Japanese family, traditional meaning that no English was ever spoken in the home. I think that would help a first year of marriage to live in a house where you can't really speak to each other. Probably I think was that good. That would probably be the best thing for a marriage. Yes, I, yeah. you cannot communicate. <laughs> prayer. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, the total cultural and language immersion gave Betty the opportunity to be completely fluent in Japanese by the time they moved out to their own home in Cocoa Head. Although the United States had been embroiled in conflict for a while, most Americans, including Betty, were blissfully unaware of what lay looming ahead. And it's surprising that so many people were unaware of this because what lay looming ahead was war. Right. The U.S. and Japan had been butting heads for decades, and it seemed almost, reading back, it seems almost inevitable that things were going to lead to war. Japan had ambitions to expand to China, and in 1937, Japan decided to declare war on China. Now, America was very, very much against this, and they were very agitated by this. And they responded with trade embargoes and economic sanctions, the worst being oil embargoes. America organized with the British and Dutch, and this almost crippled the Japanese. Japan imported 90% of its oil. Oh, wow. That's a a pretty big deal. Right. So without oil, your military is not going to go far. And all war efforts are just going to come to a grinding halt. Right. See what I did there without oil? Things come to a grinding halt. That is impressive. I like that. Good for you. Nice. Nice wordplay. Mm -hmm. Well, negotiations had been going on for months between Washington and Tokyo, and there was no resolution in sight. So Japan decided to attack and attack first because they knew that their only chance was to take America by surprise, use the element of surprise. So they attacked Pearl Harbor. They were hoping to move up through the South Pacific and to move into the Dutch East Indies and to conquer territories that would be able to provide them with resources such as oil and rubber. Well, there you go. So while people were blissfully unaware of Mm -hmm. it, if you paid attention, you could almost predict that it was going to happen. I think that they knew it was going to happen. They were probably cognitively aware, but not really aware aware of the impact that it was going to have on them. Because you had war in Europe that everybody was focused on. Right. Well, now the easygoing existence the young couple knew was completely shattered. Their new home was up in the mountains and overlooked a lagoon, and Betty was standing at the window enjoying her beautiful view while she fixed breakfast on the morning of December 7th, 1941. 
a day that will live that will in live infamy. in infamy. She was until until Karen. Yes, a mere twenty-two years later, when the clouds parted and the sun shined, and well, there was a little Charles. <laughs> sun shone. It was twenty-two years before the sun shone. I, my birthday is December seventh. I'm just trying to work that in there. <laughs> but you said the sun shined. The sun shone. Right? Wouldn't that be right? The sun shone. Okay. Yes. Well, and and you came into the world, which also was a day that shall live in infamy. <laughs> yeah, I, I came into the world quite nattily dressed. <laughs> well, back to you know Pearl Harbor. Um, Betty was enjoying some music on the radio when an announcer broke in and said, "The islands are under attack. This is the real McCoy." And then the regular programming came back on like nothing happened. Now, Isn't that bizarre? It is. Can you imagine, like, <laughs> what would that even sound like? Remember how people talked back then? Like, yeah, this is a, rem- this is a real McCoy, see? I don't know if they actually did. Back to our regular programming, <laughs> see? <laughs> it's just, yeah, like, this is the real McCoy, and then fly me to the moon. I mean, it just has, it's just got to <laughs> be really weird and surreal. Anyway. When you think in terms of something like that, um, obviously, there was no 24-hour cable media. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So people did not, I guess the news did not know how to respond to right. it. Well, <laughs> they, they... So they didn't. They didn't. Right. Yeah. Betty also thought it was a bit strange, and she mentioned it to her husband when the phone rang. When she answered, her photographer, Hump Campbell, which I'm, we don't know the story as to why his name was Hump. But that was the nickname that he went by. We're going to go with he carried a lot of stuff. Yeah, we're going to go with that. Or he just didn't need a lot of water. He just, I I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) he was on the other end of the line. Something had happened at Pearl and they needed to cover it. Hump worked for Howard Scripps and Betty did too part time. They wanted her on the story. As Betty and Humped approached Honolulu, it didn't really appear at first like anything was wrong. It seemed to be a regular Sunday with people out walking their dogs and kids playing outside, people coming back from church. Then, as they approached a neighborhood known as the Punch Bowl, Betty could see the formation of black plunging into the oceans off Pearl Harbor. Ropes of thick smoke began to scar the perfectly blue sky. And again, Karen, what does that remind you of? I don't know. Remember how pretty it was on 9-11? Yes. How beautiful yes. the blue right. sky and how was just, and then the plumes of black Just really marred the sky. There. Yes. Yeah. Suddenly there was a piercing whistle and as she watched, unable to move, almost unable to breathe, on one of the streets in the valley below, a rooftop burst into the air like the lid of a cardboard box. Betty wrote later of the event. For the first time, I felt that numb terror that all of London has known for months. It is the terror of not being able to do anything but fall on your stomach and hope the bomb won't land on you. It's the helplessness and the terror of sudden visions of a ripping sensation in your back. Shrapnel coursing through your chest. Total blackness. Maybe death. She was a pretty graphic writer. She was. She was. Hump was allowed into Pearl Harbor, but despite her press credentials, she was not allowed in because she was a woman. Instead, Betty went to Hickam Field Hospital, where the first wave of the wounded were being brought in. She described the experience this way. Bombs were still dropping over the city as ambulances screamed off into the heart of the destruction. 
The drivers were blood-soddened when they returned, with stories of streets ripped up, houses burned, twisted shrapnel in the charred bodies of children. In the morgue, the bodies were laid on slabs in the grotesque positions in which they had died. Fear contorted their faces. Their clothes were blue-black from incendiary bombs. One little girl in a red sweater, barefoot, still clutched a piece of jump rope in her hand. There was blood and the fear of death and death itself in the emergency room as doctors calmly continued to treat the victims of this new war. Interns were taping up windows to prevent them from crashing into emergency areas as bombs fell and the dead and the wounded continued to arrive. I had never known that blood could be so bright red. In the following days, Betty interviewed evacuees, a nurse who had to drop to the floor under a sudden burst of bullet spray, a woman trying to gather scrapes of paper and pencil stubs to give to those in the hospital who were begging to scrawl one last message home, a little girl named Theda who whispered softly that her daddy died at Hickam. Well, a war that seemed so far away now was right in front of her eyes. Betty, working full-time for Scripps Howard now, was hoping to get assigned to a conflict zone, but was instead sent to Washington to cover the White House. At first, Betty was pretty disappointed because while the country was at war, she was being asked to write fluff pieces. But as she adjusted, she began to enjoy her new post. She got to the point where she was able to choose her subjects, and her main subject of choice was Mrs. Roosevelt. She covered everything possible on her and also created a weekly column called Home Front Forecast. It was through that column that Betty came across a gentleman that ended up changing her life. While researching a story on a man who invented a machine to cut sugarcane, she discovered that he knew her father there in Hawaii. As the interview progressed, he asked if she would like to work in the government. Betty jokingly replied, only if I can work overseas. To her surprise, the interviewee responded with, I think that could be arranged. Despite her continued efforts to prod him for more information, the man wouldn't give Betty any more. He just ended the discussion with, I'll send you some paperwork. It turns out that the man was on General Donovan's staff, and after filling out paperwork and completing an interview, still not knowing any detailed information about the job she was applying for, Betty found herself hired and an official member of the OSS. Could you imagine there was no background check? There was nothing else. I mean, think about that today, what you would have to go through. Well, I think that there was such a recruitment process that that a lot of people were already checked kind of when they were approached. But yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing how intelligence worked at that time. Can I butt in about General Donovan just for a minute? Oh, definitely. Yeah, tell us about him. Well, he he was actually a very interesting guy. He... He was one of the most decorated Americans in the First World War. Right. And Roosevelt sent him to Britain to try to assess the situation. That was during World War II, correct? Right. That he said, yeah. right. Okay. I'm sorry, I should have been clear on that. I don't know, that's fine. And one of the things he came home with and told Roosevelt was how effective the German propaganda machine was. And he really stressed the need for a centralized American strategic intelligence agency because he assumed that we were going to end up in this war. Right. And he knew that the Germans were very, very effective at this kind of unconventional warfare. Right. And if you remember from our World War II episodes, all the agents operated independently. Right. And they all had issues with each other. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Right. 
Now, Roosevelt really had only started to consider this, making our intelligence more effective. So Donovan suggests this, and it's vigorously opposed by every other existing (laughs) intelligence agency, including J. Edgar Hoover. Mm -hmm. But despite this, Donovan keeps pushing, and Roosevelt names him, well, actually Roosevelt created the Office of the Coordinator of Information to kind of be the clearinghouse for all these intelligence agencies. Right. And he made Donovan the head of it. And then what came under Donovan was the OSS, the Office of Special Services. Right. And you know what the OSS was precursor to, correct? Do you know what it was the precursor to? CIA. The CIA. That's right. Well, Betty joked about the OSS, calling it oh-so-secret and sometimes oh-so-social because the program was kept super secret, Squirrel, and because Donovan's wife, who was very wealthy and connected, she and Donovan recruited members from their high society friends, their ac- the academics and the friends that they were familiar with. So it, at first, the very first members of OSS were from the pretty high social strata. Yeah, they were from the social registry. Yeah, right, that's what right. they said. Yeah, but Betty had an easy laugh and a quick wit combined with a somewhat fearless nature. Despite Donovan being the big boss and the head of the department, Betty would tease him and even refer to him as penguin-shaped. Much of Betty's OSS training, this is this is hilarious, was done at the Congressional Country Club in Maryland, right? So the shooting and the explosives ended up destroying the golfing greens. So there's like bombs going off. Yeah, that's like, could you not use that, the back nine? Could you save the right. back nine for us? <laughs> Right. I mean, hopefully no one planned their wedding at the country club during that time because that might be a problem. OSS had to make restitution because there was so much damage done to this country club. In fact, there were even footprints on the ceiling because of one of the trailing exercises that they had where they had to like jump out of the beds a certain Mm -hmm. way or whatever. And it caused them to. Yeah, there were footprints on the ceiling. It was it was pretty crazy. Betty's training commander was Major Herbert Little. Betty called him Herb. He quickly recognized Betty's quirky nature and ability to think outside the box, and he earmarked her as an asset to black propaganda. Betty also went through typical espionage preparation. She had to learn about ciphers, clandestine meeting tactics, interrogation techniques, and firearm training, which was not what she was best at. Betty laughingly spoke about her experience during an interview. The first time she fired a Thompson submachine gun, the kick almost spun her in a complete circle. (laughs) But she loved every second of it. She loved every second of it. The people (laughs) at the range did not love every second of it. That's probably when they decided that she did not need to be a field agent. Let's give her a typewriter or a (laughs) code machine. She can't really... Let's not make her a field agent. Her, Her first nine kills came in training. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, Betty's requested that her husband, Alex, also have a place at OSS. Because he had the same language immersion that his wife did, he did end up in the program, but in a different area, radio operations in Burma. Betty's first assignment was to New Delhi. She wanted to go to China, but male supervision would not allow it. Betty was one of the only women assigned to morale operations. And she was specifically put in black propaganda, but the whole department was called morale operations. 
Do you can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, they focus on three types. She okay. focused on black propaganda. Now, black propaganda is a form of information that is spread by one source and it's produced to look as if it came from another source. Okay. So you're getting information that might come from, say, Germany, but it's made to look like it's coming from America. The whole idea behind black propaganda is that it's convincing enough to be accepted as something other than what it really is. Now, black propaganda differs from white propaganda, where the source of the information is clear. It might not be true information, but the source of the information is clear. And then you have gray propaganda, where you okay. don't really know where the source is, who the source of the information is. Okay. So the defining feature of black propaganda is that it tends to subvert and deceive its audience in regards to its origins. The mission, the purpose of black propaganda is to weaken or embarrass the enemy. Right. It doesn't really, it's opening the door for other types of. White propaganda would be like America saying how great we were doing in the Pacific. Okay. I okay. see. And black propaganda would be if we were doing really well, but the Japanese somehow spread it to America that we were getting destroyed in the Pacific. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Well, Japanese soldiers had always been taught to never surrender and to fight to the very end and die for the emperor no matter what. And this ideology made it very difficult for Betty's operations. When the Japanese were already worn out, weary, and hungry, and they were still not surrendering, how is propaganda going to change that? Well, Betty ended up teaming up with a co-worker, Bill Magistretti, a Japanese scholar. Like Betty, he held no animosity for the Japanese people, and he wanted his work to end the war as quickly as possible in order to mitigate casualties from both sides. He had even previously studied to be a Buddhist monk. As the two worked together, they discovered the British captured some official orders the Japanese issued in Burma. They used the template of these orders to rewrite new ones, but this time with the inclusion of eased-up conditions of surrender. The main issue that they faced was that there was no one around to assist writing up the order in the official Japanese language. Apparently, all the MO people could speak Japanese really well, but not all of them were great at writing it. Right, but so. it's much different than English. You can't do it right. phonetically by our alphabet, right. so that would well, make some sense. Betty and Bill heard about a very well-educated Japanese prisoner being held at Red Fort in New Delhi. When the team visited him, the prisoner at first refused to even acknowledge their existence. Then Bill spoke, and the man turned towards him, his eyes sparkling with delighted recognition. He held out his hands towards Bill and exclaimed, Biru! Biru Magistretti! Betty was stunned to find that the prisoner and her partner had been friends in college in Tokyo. So that was that was pretty cool. She yeah, was strange like strange coincidence there. Yeah, exactly. Well, the OSS agents explained what they needed and eventually the prisoner decided the false order would be best for his country and he agreed to draft it. Now they, just they wrote one. up something like yeah, the first time a bullet comes within like 10 feet of you or a bomb, go, you hear you a bomb surrender. go up, it's okay to come out and surrender. Just <laughs> right. throw your gun down, raise your hands. It's better. That's the honorable thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Exactly. Well, now they just had to get the order back into the chain of command. 
So Bill and Betty arranged another meeting. This time they met with Colonel Ray Pierce, commander of the OSS Detachment 101, who was running guerrilla operations in North Burma. Although he did not seem receptive at first, he finally just grabbed the order and gruffly stated he would take care of it. So with that kind of response, Betty didn't know the details of how that was going to happen. And later, when she did find out, she kind of wished she hadn't. Colonel Pierce had some tribal Kachins working for him in Burma. These men were familiar with the trails that Japanese couriers used to move through the jungle. Pierce's men waylaid a messenger, killed him, and placed the order in his pouch. The Kachi then traveled to the nearest Japanese camp and informed them of the murdered courier. The Japanese soldiers were very upset, immediately investigated the situation. The Kachin reported back to the OSS that the false order generated great excitement amongst the camp. So they're all like, we get to surrender. <laughs> Woo, yes. We get to eat. <laughs> then the MO department began getting a flood of reports of surrender. So their risky mission had been very, very successful. Betty was only in New Delhi for nearly a year, and despite the fact that she was not in China as she wished, she did find herself pretty satisfied with the arrangement. Betty, a dog lover, was able to have her beloved little dog, Angel Puss, with her, and she felt like her New Delhi work was important and effective. She did find herself a bit homesick from time to time, especially when she got word that her sister had a baby, making her an aunt for the first time. She sadly packed a Burmese blanket in a care package home and threw herself back into her work. After the successful replacement order, Betty came up with and helped carry out another lofty morale campaign, Operation Blackmail. Now, the British in Burma sent over sacks of Japanese information to OSS. These sacks usually just had field manuals, books, magazines, things like that, things they couldn't really use. But in this particular group, Betty discovered a large cache of clean, dry postcards at the very bottom of one of the canvas bags. In a remarkable stroke of luck, the postcards had already been stamped by the mail censor. The cards were mostly written in simple Japanese, so Betty came up with the idea to erase the messages and replace them with complaints and negative information. <laughs> the New Delhi team wrote notes that the Japanese were losing and there was nothing but misery and starvation in the jungle. <laughs> you know, these people back home are like, do you not... Do you not miss me or anything? Because it's just like food I, stuck, food sucks, bed cold. Yeah, I hate like, it here. Right. I want to go home. <laughs> yeah. Right. Some of the messages would say they weren't getting proper support from supervision or that maybe they had found love in Burma and refused to go back. Messages that would overall paint a very bleak picture and affect morale. Shortly after the postcard bombardment, the Japanese government shifted. And it's thought that the card campaign greatly aided in the very important transition. The Burma MO also had to coordinate with British officials. Now, this was a very incredibly difficult task. Remember during this time, so you had the War Department in all of these places. You had SOE, you had OSS, you had all these different people. Right. They were all kind of fighting amongst one another. They all didn't really want to give each other intelligence. So, and... It was the British that had most of the resources. So morale operations or OSS had to basically beg for the resources from the British officials. So they had to really work um, well together to make that happen. And 
the morale operations department had to have very specific things. They needed to get access to the correct type of paper and specific offset presses to match products that were being created by the enemy. And Betty, thankfully, was really, really good at getting resources. She got along really well with um, the British representatives, and she just maintained those relationships really well. And without her, the whole operation, the entire group would not have been very successful because they needed those resources to get the job done. The small New Delhi team usually operated independently and with very little supervisory oversight. But every once in a while, General Donovan would come show up and see what was going on. Once, Betty and a few of the others were working on an operation trying to get some some pamphlets to, to the Indonesians. Well, at first, the team couldn't figure out how to do it. A contact had a friend in the British Navy who had access to a submarine. So they figured out that if they utilized the submarine, then all they had to do was figure out how to float the pamphlets ashore. Well, Betty laughingly joked that they could use condoms, and the crew realized that she was actually right. Inflated condoms would be an excellent way to get the information into the <laughs> correct hands. So this whole team is busy blowing up and stuffing paper in hundreds and hundreds of condoms, like littered about the floor, when someone jumped up and yelled, Attention! And General Donovan walked in the door. So he took a long look at what was going on, gave a faint smile, and walked out without a word. Betty, whose hands were full of her work, in other words, full of condoms, yes, she, she just like froze <laughs> when he walked in the door. But when he left, she couldn't help herself and she just burst out laughing. The rest of the group followed. Although she found some of the New Delhi work challenging, Betty also found it great fun. She also developed very important assets in India, including Father Thomas Megan. Yes, he was an interesting guy. Before I get to him, very I want to say... General Donovan would show up in places like that, even though he was the head of that. He should have been in Washington and he hated staying in Washington. Right. <laughs> he would find reasons to check on everybody. Yes. Yeah. And that turned out to be a big problem, which we'll get to later. Um, but Father Thomas Megan, a very, very interesting guy, an interesting story there, because he had this amazing network of Chinese Roman Catholics. And he was known as the fighting bishop. He was a 44-year-old Irish American. And he inherited this group from Father Vincent Levy, who was a Belgian priest who arrived in China in 1895 and moved around a little bit. And he organized Catholic Christian groups as alternatives to communism and Confucianism. Confucianism. Mm-hmm. Well, he got caught and they tortured him and he died the next day. So Father Thomas Megan inherited this group of Chinese Catholics. Right. And they were very, very, very close to the Cochins. They were very protective of the natives. And right. they were right. So that was really where their focus was. But to get um, Father Thomas 
Megan to be on their side took a lot of work. I mean, a lot of work. They had to kind of make some fake religious orders. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were there, it took a lot of work. But he ended up being a sharpshooter for the OSS. I yeah, mean, he was like Wild Bill Hickok with a it's crazy white tab collar on. I mean, the guy very was, very interesting. Yeah. Yes, but he was. Again, you needed all these pieces to fall into place to be successful and just a tremendous amount of luck and coming upon him was a huge stroke of luck. And it took a lot of work. I mean, Betty really developed these relationships and assets within people that made enormous differences. Um, Bishop Thomas actually or Bishop Megan actually started a whole espionage network there in the jungle. So, I mean... If Betty had not developed that, that would have never occurred. So which, her work was just so important. It wasn't just creating the propaganda. She was developing assets that were that made all the difference. Well, as Betty's career heated up, her marriage was cooling down. Betty and Alex found that any conversations they had in their few stolen moments centered around work. Eventually, they realized that they were now just friends, and they ultimately divorced, but they did stay on good terms all the way until Alex passed away in 2003. After all of Betty's work in India, she finally got her orders for China. As she traveled on an incredibly bumpy and nerve-wracking flight to China, she couldn't help but notice the unnaturally calm woman reading a book while Betty was worrying for her life. Betty decided during the flight right then and there that she hated that young woman. But after she landed and got to know her, she very quickly changed her mind and the two became very close friends. That woman who wouldn't be shaken was Julia McWilliams, later known as Julia Child. Betty, speaking of her dear friend in a later interview, said... In those days, Julia couldn't even do so much as boil an egg. So it really cracked her up to see what Julia Child became. We're going to do a whole episode on Julia Child here pretty soon, but her story is fascinating. But Betty's job in China behind enemy lines was to create scripts for an OSS-operated black radio station, which was just going to create black propaganda. And to create other types of propaganda as well that might encourage the Chinese to do acts of sabotage. Don't do it. You're not going to say it with me? No. Come on. No. No. Come on. No, 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 no. Okay, well, I'm going to do it by myself then. Sabotage, sabotage, sabotage. Okay, please send your email to Karen Michelle. (laughs) Everybody that doesn't like us doing that, that was my idea because I really am that cheesy. I just... I enjoy it. So every once in a while, we won't do it every time. I'm just going to have to throw a sabotage in there. This is the first time it's come up in about three or four episodes. Right. Well, Betty found this part of the job very different than what she was doing before. Because where the Japanese were concerned with honor, the Chinese enjoyed mischief. When she arrived, Betty was told the best method in working with the Chinese was to appeal to their sense of humor. Suggesting, for example, it would be a great joke... Um quotations around joke to throw a lit cigarette into a Japanese fuel dump. I'm, I'm still or, trying to figure that out. I, yeah, that's not funny to me, but apparently it was to them. Although the work appealed to that, to part of her nature, because there were like, she was kind of a jokester. The other part of her found it very distasteful. Still, she believed that ending the war by all means was the most important goal. Now the OSS objectives were to, 
convince Chinese residents of occupied areas to bomb strategic targets, such as munitions factories, to persuade laborers in such places to desert their jobs and flee with their families, to deceive, misdirect, and confuse the Japanese as to any intended targets and operations of the 14th Air Force, to give false, misleading, and confused... (laughs) I don't know why I find this funny and confusing directions to disrupt Japanese shipping. Because that's what you do on a regular (laughs) basis when people ask you, hey, how do I get the target from here? You don't mean to do it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You'll you'll see a greenhouse and they have a, a German shepherd. And they and go oh three more gosh, streets. Oh my gosh, the lady's yeah. dress is so pretty. Yeah. And the, the, the lady that always, you know, the one that has the big hair, turn at her house. And then, yeah, my directions may not be the best. No. Yeah. They were also supposed to encourage friendly Chinese to um, passive resistance and eventually active revolt. I'm going to say it again, but I won't nope, make you say nope, it with nope. me. Only once a show, we have a limit. Even sabotage. Sabotage, sabotage. Okay, Betty had been there for only I'm a week. I'm editing when that a- out. <laughs> Betty had been there only a week when a fluffy cocker spaniel showed up and dropped a slobbery tennis ball at her feet. His name was Sammy, short for my Assam Dragon, and he belonged to a member of the 14th Air Force, Colonel Richard Heppner. But Sammy much preferred Betty's company to his own owner's company. Oftentimes, it appeared that maybe Richard agreed with his dog. The pup may have sensed Betty's loneliness because she had to leave Angel Puss, who had been denied passage, maybe because his name was Angel Puss. Anyway, he had been denied passage and was living with a pilot friend of Betty's back in India. Sammy provided Betty with much needed comfort as she navigated the difficulties of China. Although resources were more plentiful and alliances with the Brits were no longer an obstacle, Betty now had to contend with all the factional jealousies and political issues and all the wars within wars that were erupting in China's little pockets of resistance. And the morale operations tent was constantly busy. They were producing newspapers and pamphlets. But now, M.O. Black Radio was the main event, and Betty's crew was creating daily scripts for broadcasts. You know, every time in the script when I read it and I would hear Black Radio, I kept thinking about, like, these Chinese stations blurting out Motown. <laughs> <laughs> like the Temptations. and Ch- Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was yeah. Just, it's like, yeah, that'd be cool. Motown and it would. China. I'm sorry. I, got, I went off topic you Go did ahead. a little bit well no it's you you're, you're supposed to tell us about the radio mission which is called operation hermit well operation hermit this was a radio program they were pre-recorded and they were beamed from a mobile transmitter so the japanese couldn't bomb them and the shows were tailored to the local chinese and one of the most popular shows included someone known as the hermit And they would base their various predictions on a combination of the Chinese calendar, the Japanese calendar, the Zodiac, things like that. Right, they kind of did like a psychic reading type show. Except the hermit would predict things that had already happened because news traveled (laughs) slowly. (laughs) Right. And then when people found out that actually that the hermit had predicted it and then they found out that it happened, they were like, oh. Oh my goodness, you know. Right, right. So, yeah. Pretty amazing. That was a very popular show. Mm -hmm. While in China, 
Betty did find herself able to help in a more morally satisfying endeavor when her friend, Corporal Frank J. Chisari, came across a young woman who had been killed while fleeing some of the infighting. As he moved closer to the body, he heard a thin wail and upon further investigation found a tiny baby gazing up at him. The infant was greatly malnourished. Cinders were ground into her face and blood poured out of a large gash stretching from her cheek to her throat. The corporal worked to keep the little girl alive as he rushed to a local mission school, only to be denied admission because the baby in critical condition was a female. Another mission turned them away for the same reason. Finally, a French mission took the baby along with the promise of money and parachute silk. So you knew they were doing it for the right reason, right? The next day, when Chisari went to check on the little one, her face was still bloody and she had obviously not been treated at all. So, right then, Chisari found a doctor, slammed him against the wall, and demanded treatment. And guess what? The baby got treatment. Oh, yeah, That's she did. typically what I do when I go into the emergency room. I figured that, yeah. If you that's... do that when you walk in, just... Actually, it's just being clumsy and breaking things that will get you. Like if <laughs> you're if you're at the doctor's office, mm-hmm. I found this. This is very effective. So this is one of those more you know moments. See, you thought you were just getting a spy podcast, but you're getting life advice here. Okay. If your doctor has an aquarium, just start reaching in and trying to grab the fish. <laughs> you will not have to wait more than like three minutes in the waiting room. That's good to know. That's good to know. The more you know, Karen. Life advice from Chuck. That's helpful. I like that. Well, eventually, the little girl named Anne regained her strength. Chisari had her moved to the Lutheran orphanage that just happened to be right across from the airfield. In fact, he was like, wait, the orphanage has been there all along? He had no idea it was an orphanage. Every day, he would pick Anne up and keep her with him as he went about his work. He even had a special seat made for her in the Jeep. Little Anne would light up when she saw him and patiently watch him work until he could spend time with her. The M.O. crew, namely Betty, discovered Chisari's mission and embarked on a campaign to fund Anne's education and housing. So they sketched Anne and Betty wrote up a story which they quickly disseminated. After just an hour, enough money was raised to pay for Anne's board, her education, and even a Chinese marriage dowry. She was how old? Well, she was just a little baby yeah. girl, but like basically it was going to provide for her the rest of her life. Yeah. It's so. like the first GoFundMe, really. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. In one of her last missions in China, Betty was told they needed something big to get into Japan, and the group was pushed to predict something catastrophic, something that would truly rattle Japanese forces in China. So Betty arranged for the hermit to appear on a broadcast and use astrological predictions to surmise that a huge catastrophe was imminent. A little while later, Betty appeared at the M.O. tent where everyone was gathered around the transmission receiver, white-faced. Someone finally turned to Betty and said, It's awful, simply awful. We just dropped an atomic bomb over Hiroshima and wiped a whole city off the map. Betty was completely stricken. Her fake catastrophe had actually occurred, and it decimated the city of Hiroshima. Well, when OSS disbanded, Betty felt conflicted. Although she knew her work had been important, she also knew that part some of it caused immense pain. Overall, though, she took a very pragmatic view on things. She knew her time in the OSS had had incredible purpose. When asked about it, she said, 
Never again would I ever feel so alive, so completely engaged in something I knew would never come around again. After the war, Betty worked writing the official OSS China history for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. After 1947, she wrote the popular book Undercover Girl, a story of her memoirs. She also tried a brief stint as a writer for a Glamour magazine, and like her sports writing time, she hated every second of it. So she quickly discarded that idea and became a radio specialist with The Voice of America. Yeah, and it's interesting that she could write a book in 1947 because the British, you remember the secrecy things that they signed. Mm-hmm. Nobody right. could even speak of what they did. Well, she, uh, General Donovan helped her. So there was, it It was. It was just much different here. Right. Because right. they didn't it, have those secrecy still a agreements. Lot we don't know about what oh, she sure. did there. But, sure. Right. Well, the Voice of America is interesting, too. It was it was created in 1942 as a radio program, and it was designed to explain America's policies during World War II and to bolster the morale of troops and allies throughout Europe and the Middle East and Africa and Asia. Right. It probably had some white propaganda, actually. Oh, absolutely. It probably had some, yeah. Yeah, some of that. Well, Betty also became a special delegate to the Department of State to the UN, a speechwriter for other delegates, and was a special delegate for the Commission on the Status of Women. While in China, Betty had worked for Richard, also known as Dick, Pinkerton Hepner. She had also stolen the affection of his dog, Sammy. Well, in truth, she had stolen his heart as well. In 1938, Hepner had joined General Donovan's New York law firm, and he had left temporarily to serve. He ended up with a distinguished wartime military service record, including working for OSS, where he first met Betty. Well, when he returned to his position, Betty was also working for Donovan. Ha 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 ha. Uh huh. So it didn't take long at all until the two were married in 1948. Yeah, and Hepner and Donovan went on to be prosecutors at the Nuremberg trials together. Right. Yes. And that allowed Hepner, Dick Hepner, to open and manage a law firm for Donovan in Washington. Seven years after that, Dick Hepner accepted a position as President Eisenhower's appointment as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security. That same year, Betty decided to write a children's book, Inky, A Seeing Eye Dog. But later that year, tragedy struck, and Richard, who had just went all around and visited all the bases, he suddenly died from a burst aorta. Betty, who was only 43, was completely devastated, so she went back to what she knew best, intelligence work. She did do another children's book in 1959 called Palace Under the Sea, but that was her last one. Now, Betty found the CIA quite different from the OSS, but she approached the challenge with the same attitude and expectation of being treated equally as she did in the OSS. And that attitude served her well because she stayed at the CIA as a case and operations officer until her retirement in 1973. But as we will soon learn, she never really retired. <laughs> like Betty never retired from anything. She always worked. After Richard's death, she thought her chances for love were over, but life had other plans. While on a Japanese trip, Betty met Air Force pilot Lieutenant Colonel Fred Ballard McIntosh 
and the two married in 1962 and settled in Leesburg, Virginia. After her official CIA retirement, Betty worked in public relations. She represented the OSS at the CIA headquarters, the Spy Museum, the World War II Memorial in Arlington Cemetery. She participated in many OSS-related ceremonies, presentations, and memorials. And under President Clinton, she also um, laid the wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which was one of her greatest moments. From 2000 until well past 2010, Betty was editor of the OSS Society Journal and was active in OSS Society Affairs. She received their Distinguished Service Award in 2007. Then, in 2015, at 100 years of age, Betty McIntosh gave a speech to CIA members at Langley. Although she herself didn't even have an email address, she addressed the audience on how easily news can be manipulated and social media weaponized. Perhaps those attending listened and learned. We sure do know that many of America's enemies did. Isn't I mean, that amazing? Talking about that she could see relevant. that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I. That just blows me away that at 100 years old, in 2015, she was warning about that. Later, that same year, at 100 years old, Elizabeth Pete Betty McIntosh passed away from a heart attack. She was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Betty McIntosh was a woman who knew her worth. She was unafraid when it came to joining a government agency that she knew nothing about. She was confident and fearless in the wild and confusing world of misinformation. She was a woman who was wildly creative, but at the same time, incredibly practical. She was a woman who knew how to make and keep connections, not because they were assets, but because they were people that she appreciated and friendships that she cultivated and maintained. She was a woman who understood the importance of a secret just as much as she appreciated the, the deliciousness of a Reuben sandwich. Betty McIntosh knew who she was. She knew what she wanted, and she did what it took to get there. Elizabeth McIntosh was a daughter, an eyewitness to history, a journalist, a wife, a friend, a devoted fur mom, a mastermind, a jokester, an author, a representative, an educator, and she was a spy. If you like the show and would like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. You can become a Patreon supporter. You can find us at Patreon under Spy Stories. You can tell your friends about our show. You can share our episodes. You can leave us positive reviews on iTunes. We have a Facebook group, Spy Stories Podcast. The life of Betty McIntosh reminds us that we all have gifts and talents. We just need to learn how to use them properly. She reminds us that you are never too old to give something of value to the world and that it is important to always take the time to connect and to teach. Like Harriet the Spy says, life is hard, but a good spy gets in there and fights. And until next week, keep fighting. Keep fighting.